Welcome to you all today. I'm Paul Pappas, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Carl Schultz, President of the University of Oregon. Schultz was selected as the 19th President of UO by the Board of Trustees on March 13, 2023. He began his tenure on July 1, 2023. Prior to joining the U of O, Schultz was the Provost at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he also served as the Dean of the College of Letters and Science from 2013 to 2019. He joined UW-Madison's Department of Economics in 1988 and was later named the Nellie June Gray Professor of Economic Policy. He also directed the Institute for Research on Poverty at UW-Madison from 2000 to 2004. Thanks, Carl, for coming on the show. It's great to have you and welcome to the University of Oregon. Thank you, Paul. It's, it's a great treat to be here. So first, what attracted you to the job of being the president of UOL? A great university in a great spot, what's not to like? And so um, I'm really excited about the University of Oregon. I love the Pacific Northwest and I'm thrilled to be here. And you have a, ch a child who's a graduate student here. Yeah, our, our middle daughter is a rising fourth year graduate student uh, studying volcanoes. Ah, that's a good, <laughs> this is a good place to study volcanoes. It's a very good place. So you've been on the job now for three months. What are the, some of the things that have impressed you about the university in that time? Well, it's been a crash course to get to know the university, but um, it sounds trite to say it, but uh, people make great organizations and uh, I've been amazed at the, the warmth, but then the enthusiasm people have for the University of Oregon. Both our students are, are wonderful, but the staff and faculty are so committed to what it is that we're trying to do. And then our alums are almost uh, <laughs> indescribably blissed out about everything duck. And so that's really a wonderful experience to, to be able to immerse oneself in. So you've just alluded to what you've been doing for the past three months. So what's been your focus since you came in July? Yeah, so it, it, for a new president, there's trying to intensively learn about the university, about the state of Oregon to accelerate the, the learning process of what it means to be an Oregonian. Uh, but there's also a really important aspect to, to listening and learning. So we collectively, I hope, we're able to arrive at a set of strategic priorities that will guide us going forward. And so starting to engage, what should that process look like that's able to, to get um, input from people um, and then Open, open your mind, open your ears, and listen and find out what people's, what, what our collective aspirations are and how we can go about uh, accomplishing those. So uh, probably the thing that's gotten the most attention in the press has been that uh, in August you announced that U of O Athletics would be leaving the Pac-12 conference in, 20, in August 24 to join the Big Ten. So first of all, why? Why, did you, yeah. why was that the right thing to do? A great, great question, Paul. And I... Uh, we'll focus often on f five words in describing why. Uh, the first is stability. For anyone who follows uh, big time intercollegiate athletics, there's been remarkable instability. Kicked off when Texas and Oklahoma left their conference, but for the Pac-12, when USC and UCLA left a, a year ago, all, automatically like 40% of our media value to the conference just vanished. Then before a deal was on the table, the University of Colorado uh, changed conferences. And so there's a lot of instability going on. Um, and so joining the Big Ten offers the University of Oregon greater stability. And as a side note on that, my president peer at the University of Arizona, Bobby Robbins, talked about the deal that was on the table for the remaining Pac-12 members. And he said it would involve 
buying a subscription on Apple TV in order for Duck sports fans to watch Oregon sports. And he said that would be akin to selling candy bars in order to support your child's little league team. That doesn't sound like a very stable situation. Second is visibility. As I mentioned, the, the deal that was on the table would require Duck sports fans, even casual fans, to, to buy a supplemental package on Apple TV. That meant that we, our sports would not be available on so-called linear or conventional television. And that's critical. Having that kind of exposure is uh, critical as we try to recruit students from around the country and around the world as well as those who are passionate about duck athletics. The third and fourth words are uh, academic opportunities or academic excellence. And those opportunities through the Big Ten, it's, I'm not arguing that, oh, the Big Ten is a better academic conference than the Pac-12 or vice versa. It's not an argument about that. It's an it's a objective statement that the Big Ten offers academic programs that no other conference has been able to replicate. And those are through the auspices of an organization called the Big Ten Academic Alliance. For, well, for all of us, the Big Ten libraries share resources in a program called the Big Collection, and it, and it works. And so different universities are able to get greater depth in different areas and then pool resources so it doesn't have to be replicated at each library. Um, course share allows the teaching of less commonly taught or less commonly taken languages. Um, critical for, for scholarship, critical for our understanding of the world, but there's just not great demand for Swahili or Urdu. And so the different institutions can pool the teaching resources. So UCLA can teach semester one, or Michigan can teach semester two, Oregon can teach semester three, and allow our students to pool that way. There's a Big Ten ac academic leadership program for people who have are interested in being department chairs or deans or other administrators. Um, the best training program of its sort in the country. And then the various uh, university officials, vice presidents, vice chancellors and the like, will get together several times a year. The arts and sciences dean did, de deans did that regularly to share best practice and doing that helps make us better. Um, and then the fifth word would be of course finances. Um, but it's I want to emphasize that University of Oregon, like all great universities, we're nonprofits, we're mission focused. And so why finances matter is the University of Oregon's athletic department is one of only about 25 athletic departments in the country that is financially self-sustaining. And that's really important to me as a president. I don't want to ask taxpayers of the state of Oregon most of whom don't have a college degree, to, to help support big-time intercollegiate athletics. I don't want to ask the parents or the children who come to the University of Oregon to help fund that. And so the, the media revenues offered by the Big Ten Conference allows us to continue that separation between the finances of the academic side of the university and the athletic side. And so for those reasons, stability, visibility, academic excellence, and, and financial support, I think this was the right move for the Big Ten, or right move for the University of Oregon. Let me, I, I'm sorry, Paul, let me no, say no, one ahead. other thing though. <laughs> As human beings, we're capable of more than one emotion at, at the same time. And so while I do think this was the right move for the University of Oregon, I'll also say I'm genuinely sad about the situation that the Pac-12 finds itself. And while I'm a recent transplant to Oregon, I've 
very quickly come to love the state. And I think it's absolutely critical for the state of Oregon to have two outstanding R1 universities. And so as the University of Oregon president, I want to see Oregon State be successful. And so um, we will do what we can to be helpful as Oregon State navigates this disruption of conference change. So um, the university has released a website just recently about the change and mm -hmm. it explains many of the things you've just explained. Um, and a lot of attention obviously has been focused on football. Um, but one of the concerns is for the other sports. Yeah. So say a little bit about how that move will impact athletes who play not on the football team and also how the university's dealing with those yeah. changes. Yeah, no, Paul, thank you very much for the question. So um, for 45% of our student athletes, the conference change will have involve no change in travel, no increase in travel. So students in acro and tumbling or men's and women's cross country, men's and women's indoor track, men's and women's outdoor track, because they, they aren't doing dual meets. Uh, and so consequently, there's no change in travel, again, for 45% of our student athletes. The most impacted groups would be women's volleyball, men's and women's basketball. Um, so they, there will be an increase in travel. Um, uh, the maximum for the people who have looked at the schedules would be six days. And I don't want to trivialize, six days is going to be a potentially large impact on the ability of a, uh, a, a student athlete's success in the classroom. And so, but that is before we've taken measures to try to minimize the impact. For example, the women's volleyball team played two non-conference matches, one at the University of Hawaii, so traveled to Hawaii, a second one traveling to Pittsburgh. With greater travel with the Big Ten schedule, we can make sure to schedule non-conference games closer to home. And we'll make similar kinds of adjustments. We're on a term system or a trimester uh, system. We can try to schedule some of the longer trips in between winter and spring terms or fall and winter terms. And so try, trying to take those measures, we can reduce the burdens on our, our athletes as students. Um, so we're, I'm gonna switch gears on you now. Yes, of course. So um, you and I were at an event yesterday uh, honoring uh, um, Peter DeFazio, he just gave his papers to the uh, Special Collections and University Archives. I noticed there that Joe Buck was in attendance. So Joe Buck has just come on board as the new VP for Advancement. Um, why was he the right man for the job? I think Joe will be a, a terrific uh, addition to the Oregon community. Uh, I could say three things. First, uh, Joe's a first-generation college student and absolutely committed to the role that the great research universities play in society and training students. Second, uh, coincidentally, he's a, he's a duck parent. Uh, well before this became on Joe's radar, his youngest son uh, decided that Oregon was the place to come. And so sitting in eastern Pennsylvania, where his previous posting was, uh, out of all the you know, more than 2,500 college colleges and universities, uh, the, the youngest child in the Buck family understood just how special Oregon is. Uh, third, uh, he just has a fantastic record in every stop of, of growth, of building teams, and doing, doing great work to uh, enhance universities' missions. Um, there have been, there are a number of other leadership positions that are vacant at the moment, I mean with interim people. Um, tell us about those uh, those positions and how the searches, where's the status of the searches? Yeah, so we're currently uh, uh, 
well along on a search for a vice president for communications. My colleague Keith Frazee has been doing a wonderful job as interim, but we're, you know, I'm knocking on wood as I say this, but I'm hoping that we're able to uh, close that search fairly soon. We will start quite soon, and we're doing the background work, but we'll do start quite soon with a search for a provost. Um, that's a very important position. Jennifer Woodruff Borden has been doing that for uh, very, very capably, wonderful job for well over a year. Um, we'll commence with that search. And then later, possibly after the, the new year, uh, we'll start with the search for the Vice President for Student Affairs. Uh, Chris Winter has been doing a, a great job as an interim, um, but again, we want to remove those interim tags. Uh, we have a couple dean searches, one with the Clark Honors College, one with the School of Business that will also get going uh, likely uh, later this fall. So lots, lots, of, lots of leadership searches, but it's exciting to have the opportunity to, to build the team. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so um, you spoke to the Board of Trustees last month in Portland, and you outlined five areas on which you intend to focus. And you mentioned those earlier in passing. Tell us about those five areas. Yeah, so, so this is a little, there's a little tension here between the desire and the, the serious commitments, more than a desire. <laughs> we, I am going to authentically listen and learn. And yet, and yet, I've been in higher education for over 30 years. I've intensively studied the University of Oregon. I've interacted with the trustees. I have some idea of their aspirations. And so I'm not coming in as a, as a blank slate. And so what I'm trying to do, and what I'm hoping we're gonna do successfully, is put some structure on this process of authentic listening and learning. And what would that structure involve? You mentioned five things. So one, I'm really hoping to uh, improve four and six year graduation rates at the University of Oregon. We're doing fine, we can do better. And someone, a listener might have the reaction that, yeah, that seems impossibly narrow, Carl, <laughs> let's think bigger. And I'd say, no, no, graduation rates affect or are affected by everything that it, impacts the undergraduate student experience. And so whether it's mental health or financial worries or accurate, empathetic, timely advising, or how we're delivering the curriculum at what times and our courses accessible at the time students need. Pretty much everything that affects undergraduates will have an impact on graduation rates. So graduation rates make a nice summary statistic for the quality of the undergraduate experience. Second, I would love for the University of Oregon to be a leader among the public research universities in career preparation for our students. Not that I want to commodify what we're doing, this precious thing, the education that we're doing, but this genuine belief that, that all of our majors are fantastic for helping students make that transition from college to the world of work. So I sometimes will pick on my uh, historian friends and say, for the right students, history is a magnificent major, right? Because it teaches students to, to write well, it teaches students to communicate it, teaches students to grab broad swaths of data and create meaning out of it. it, it, it histor historians analyze change and every organization that we encounter is going to have to navigate change. And so it's helping our students tell their stories about how they're gonna create value in the workplace that they come into after college. It also allows us to, to leverage our alumni network, our passionate alumni network. And it's critical also from a, 
equity, diversity, and inclusion standpoint. That I, I will frequently say I'm the father of three daughters. The Schultz daughters didn't, wouldn't need an Oregon Career Initiative or Ducks Fly Higher or whatever we end up calling it since they, they're able to draw on my wife Melissa's networks, they're able to draw on my networks if they need an unpaid summer internship. It's, you know, they, they, they get a gift from the bank of mom and dad. But so many of our students, first generation students or other students do not have that privilege that the Schultz daughters had by accident of birth. And we as an institution, I think, need to recreate that privilege. We'll focus, I hope we'll focus, I mentioned equity and diversity and inclusion, but two other favorite words that we talk a lot about is belonging, creating a campus where every student, every staff member, every faculty member has some place on campus where they say, I belong here. This is for me. This is part of who I am. And if we're able to foster that sense of belonging, then we can have a higher aspiration to have a campus of, of flourishing. Let's define what that means and how do we create a campus where everybody, again, can reach their full potential, at least as it applies to the University of Oregon. Fourth, we, I say, I'll assert, we can't be everything to everyone. So we have to do this introspection about what are some of our strengths that are distinctive about the University of Oregon and try to amplify those strengths. And so I frequently will point to the Oregon Bach Festival as one of those, or you know, our, our path-breaking work in neuroscience, or the Oregon Hazards Lab, where we're second to none in work on earthquakes and fires and, and um, earthquakes, fires, and volcanoes. How could I forget? My daughter's going to be so disappointed. I say we can branch out and do locusts and pestilences as well. But, but then, and then the Balmer uh, Institute on Children and Behavioral Health, the Knight Campus for Accelerating Scientific Impact. There's so many jewels across the university. Let's amplify. And then lastly, and possibly the most quirky, I don't think so. It's that the, the, the reputation for innovation, entrepreneurship, and success of Oregon athletics is something that every president or chancellor would love to have. We have it at the University of Oregon. How can we use that to further accelerate the reputation of the academic side or the whole university? And I think places have done that. I think Duke University has very successfully used the success of their basketball program to elevate the whole university. And as human beings, I, I kind of recoil at this, but I think it's true that if, if an institution or someone is very good at one thing, we often will attribute they're, they're good in other things. So if Duke University is great in basketball, boy, they must be pretty good in quantum physics. You know, the rationalists will say, that's absurd, right? But they, Duke has been able to, I think, exploit that in ways that have been very helpful for the university. Why not at Oregon? So let's talk a little bit more about some of these all of these laudable uh, goals that you pointed to. Um, I want to start your um, eloquent comments about history majors. Mm -hmm. So I know that you appreciate UO's historical role as the state's liberal arts university. You went to Carleton College, correct? I did. That is one of the great liberal arts colleges of our country. So um, why are liberal arts still so important? I love the, the classical definition of liberal. I always, if I'm in front of alums, I sort of dis, disabuse this idea that uh, this is a political continuum, liberal or unconservative, nothing like that. Liberal, the knowledge essential for a free thinking human. Who could oppose that? Our great university is bathed and steeped in inculcating the knowledge essential for a free thinking person. 
Do we have to say more? <laughs> okay, that works for me. Um, you know that I'm the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. I'm an English professor. Um, how do you understand the role of the humanities at U of O? Oh, it's a constant. I, I, I look forward to your continued mentorship and, uh, and, and teaching because we all, we all try to be students in everything we do. But let me, let me take my starting answer and then I can evolve. So, so I've already mentioned that the, the, the role that the humanities and the liberal arts education plays in these, um, these essential skills uh, to, in order to, to make a good living. And so communication, whether written communication, oral communication, uh, synthesis, analysis, um, things that every, every employer survey in the world says is important. But our goals for our education and our students go beyond to make a good living. We, we, we want all everyone to lead a good life. And the humanities, I believe, are indispensable for that. It's a deep knowledge of what, what, it, what it means to be human. And so these, these age-old questions that I say, why do we continue to focus on some work and not others? What is, it, what is enduring about particular writers or particular plays or particular artists? What is you know, <laughs> some of the deeper questions in life? What is truth? What is happiness? How do, what do, how do we communicate as humans? What is essential about connecting? I think all of those things are fundamentally the, the domain of the, of the humanities, and we have so much to learn from that. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it very much. Um, let's go talk about the Bomber Institute for Children's Behavioral Health and the new Portland campus. Give us an update on progress there. Oh, the progress is amazing, but let me not swallow the top line. So there is a crisis in child and adolescent mental health and behavioral health out in society. We're not immune to it at the University of Oregon. And the, 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 the vision of the Balmer Institute is nothing short of breathtaking. Because uh, as you mentioned at the outset, I'm an economist, so I like to often will think about the world as supply and demand. And part of the problem with behavioral health is that the professionals working in there, wonderful, wonderful people, committed, but there's not enough of them in that there's sense to be a requirement of a master's degree or PhD to enter and work in the field. And we just don't produce enough of those people. The, imp the upshot of that is that we tend to wait until issues are crises before we intervene. And this is where the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, is really true. So what the Balmer Institute is trying to do is create a whole new employment category. That is evidence-based evidence-based professionals with undergraduate degrees who can be embedded in the schools or pediatrician's office to intervene, again, with evidence-based approaches that can head off problems before they come, become crises. As I said, audacious vision in our ways, our progress along there. We've enrolled our first class. We have 50 students at Eugene. We have transfer agreements with Mount Hood Community College, Lane Community College, Port Portland Community College to, to provide additional pathways in there. Um, uh, we've worked with over 200 professionals who are getting certificates and are just 
<laughs> the things, the, the positive things they say about the program is just breathtaking. And they are already in the schools doing things that are working. We've hired a set of clinical faculty members, faculty members. It's just the, the start could not be more promising. And what about the campus? What's happening there? Then the, the campus is beautiful. So we're on the former Concordia campus. It's the University of Oregon, Portland. Uh, so uh, the people at the Balmer Institute are co-located now for the first time. And then other programs that uh, previously were in the White Stag building will be coming over during this year. Uh, and so it's 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 truly a lovely it's a lovely campus. I encourage anybody uh, to to come by. So you mentioned. Um, the Knight campus and construction of phase two is underway. Why is that addition to the campus important? Yeah. There's more, more, more lab space, more office space, and needed to, to create the collisions and the sparks uh, of, of scientists, uh, faculty, students, graduate students, uh, to do more of the wonderful work that's already happening at the Knight campus. The original plans had called for two buildings. It's the execution of that, of that vision. And like what I said about the Balmer Initiative, I'll use, or the Balmer Institute, I'll use fewer words. There's, there's wonderful things happening at the Knight campus. Um, you mentioned diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So tell us a little bit about what's happening on campus to advance those priorities. And also, in particular, we have had a longstanding problem retaining BIPOC faculty. What are we doing about that? Yeah. So coming in, I wasn't aware of the kind of the, the amount of work that had happened uh, at the unit level, if you will, with action plans. We had working groups. We had action partners that were facilitating meetings. And so it's, I've been doing a deep dive into that work. And I think there is a, there's a lot of outstanding work that's happening. Um, kind of a, a critique of us as central campus administrators, I think there was an absence of campus statements about um, what what uh, what we think what we, what we learn from the surveys? What are the things that we should celebrate? And there are some things that we should celebrate. One of the things I've reacted to is, oh, there's been this climate survey, and and people are afraid of it. It's like, oh, climate is terrible at the University of Oregon. I have a lot of experience with climate surveys, both at University of Wisconsin Madison, and then in benchmarking against other peers. And in some dimensions, Oregon looks pretty darn good. In many dimensions, we look really similar to other great public research universities. And in some areas, we need to do better. And so it's, let's, let's do hard-headed analysis of this. Let's celebrate where things are good, but let's then roll up our sleeves and get after what we can be better at. And so I, I fully anticipate within the next month, maybe a little bit sooner, to have some sort of Okay, here's what, here's what Carl, as president, thinks we learn from this. What are steps that we're gonna take to address things? Let's, let's do a campus meeting so I have an opportunity to hear from others, uh, both their areas where we're gonna feel good about things, but more where we can do better. And then this broader effort of creating a campus, of, of taking this idea of belonging seriously, and then thinking about what, it, what would it mean to have a flourishing campus, I think is an important step then in, in hiring and retaining great faculty from historically underrepresented groups. Um, 
it, because as the, as the culture, as it becomes a professionally rewarding place to be, then we're going to be more successful at recruiting, retaining, and being the campus that we want to be. So you, we've discussed your new role as president of the University of Oregon, but you are also, and as we, you've mentioned, an accomplished economist, a scholar of economics. Tell us a little bit about your research. Oh, that, that is going to be the least interesting question uh, for, uh, for listeners. And so I, I studied, because I, I haven't been doing research for a while, uh, individual behavior. And so I was fascinated by questions about uh, upper ends of the income distribution, how people accumulate wealth, whether they're accumulating enough wealth uh, or are they heading like lemmings off a cliff of improvident retirements. Uh, and I was a little bit of a heretic here, thinking that people, finding that people were doing better than um, many thought. Uh, I would study low-wage labor markets. So early in my career, I did uh, some of the first work on uh, a provision of the tax code called the Earned Income Tax Credit that delivers uh, billions of dollars to hardworking Americans. Uh, I was proud of that work. And then I've done quirky things like uh, how male facial attractiveness affects lifetime earnings. <laughs> and so a uh, wide range of research interests, but that was more in my past. So um, we're coming to the end of our time. This is probably my last question. What's been your favorite Eugene moment so far? Uh, it's, it's the the people and the beauty. I, I, it's just, uh, I can't describe. I, people in the Midwest are very, very nice, uh, but I can't describe the, the warmth of the uh, reception that, that Melissa and I have had uh, to Eugene. And then again, the place is absolutely stunning. I mean, the, 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 the beauty, um, you know, the outdoor ethos, the, the wines, everything about it. It's just, I, I pinch myself and I've come to paradise. I felt the same way when I got here back in 1995. Yeah. Um, Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been uh, fascinating to hear about your plans, what's going on at the University of Oregon, and all the best of luck to you. Oh, Paul, thank <laughs> you so much for the opportunity. It's really, it's really been terrific. I've been speaking with Carl Schultz, 19th president of the University of Oregon. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you.